Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, you have said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Lord, we know that your words are eternal. They are settled in the heavens. And we know that we need to know what you have said because you are our Lord and Savior. You are our Master. So teach us how to carefully understand your word, to believe them, and to obey them. In your name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, our focus today for this message is going to be from Matthew, the book of Matthew. Firstly, Matthew 5 is the passage that is usually used in a wrong way and sometimes as a trump card in order to avoid praying prayers of imprecation or praying for justice or a curse or punishment upon our enemies. The verse in Matthew 5 begins at verse 43. Matthew 5:43. Let's understand what this passage means in context, what it does mean, what it does not mean, and then we will see in the book of Matthew from the words of Jesus himself that whatever Jesus meant here cannot contradict what all he said elsewhere in the same book of Matthew because he is the Lord Jesus himself. Now first, what does this passage mean? Matthew 5:43. 5:43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here he's calling on us to strive for perfection, just as God is perfect, to strive to be like our heavenly Father. Well, what does that mean? He illustrates in verses 45 and following that God the Father does good things to Wicked people, to those who are evil, he does good things. He sends them rain. And if they have rain, then they have coolness. They have a fertile field. They can have a crop. They can eat their food. They can have a livelihood. This is the kind of thing God does to evil people, to wicked people. So because God does this, this kind of thing to evil and wicked people, we ought also to do the same to evil and wicked people, to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is what he's calling on us to do. However, nothing here is saying we can never and ought never to pray for an imprecation, to pray for a curse or punishment upon our enemies. He's simply saying we have to make room in our thinking and in our life for doing good for our enemies. One of the misunderstandings people have is that they think that this is new to the New Testament. They think that loving one's enemy is new to the New Testament. They assume that hating one's enemy is what all that they were supposed to do in the Old Testament, and then in the New Testament, what all they're supposed to do is to love their enemies. So hate in the old, and then love in the new. This is the false paradigm people construct. However, let me take that apart bit by bit. One, 
In the Old Testament, notice in Exodus chapter 23, Exodus chapter 23, verse 4. Exodus 23, verse 4. In the Old Testament, they were expected to love their enemies. 23, verse 4. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. Here we have two examples These are common daily experiences, something that people will encounter. That is, you might meet your enemy's ox or donkey wandering away. So, in an agricultural farming environment, when this kind of thing happens, what should you do? Somebody is your enemy, but somebody's animal, your neighbor's animal, your enemy neighbor, has an animal that's lost. In here, in our urban environment, maybe it might be a dog. Whatever. You have some animal like that, some possession of your enemy astray. So that possession, that animal is astray. What should you do? Should you just say, I I didn't see it. I don't want to help. I don't want to tell him. You, You make excuses. Is that the kind of thing? Jesus is saying, don't do that. And even Moses here in Exodus 23 is saying, don't do that. Go help your enemy's ox and donkey. Because when you help your enemy's ox or donkey, you're showing love. You're helping him. You're helping your enemy neighbor. So here, they are expected to love their enemies. And even the enemy is said there in verse 5 as a hater. He might hate you. Enemies hate you, right? So another word for an enemy is a hater. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, it's standing there for a long time with a heavy load. For perhaps the owner forgot to take the load off of his donkey. So now the donkey is suffering. What should you do? The owner of the donkey hates you. Should you just walk away? Pretend you don't see it? Or should you help the donkey? Help your hater because of his donkey. And he's saying, help. Love your enemy. This is the same that Jesus is saying in Matthew 5. There will be circumstances in life when people who hate you or who are your foes, you should show love, expressions of love to them in particular situations. When it's something that is in your means to help and do for them, do for for them. So in these physical and material ways, isn't that what the Father does? Matthew 5, 45. He gives the wicked people of the world rain so that they can be sustained. He gives that, and in the same way, we ought to help the people who hate us and our our foes. This is all what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that in the Old Testament they were to hate only, and now we are to love only. He's not saying that whatsoever. In fact, in Titus 1, verse 16, Titus 1, verse 16, it actually says, about professing believers. It says, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. There, the Apostle Paul says that professors of religion who don't really live out their life, who live a contradiction to what they are preaching, these people are detestable and disobedient and worthless. 
Detestable, disobedient, and worthless. That means we ought to detest them. We ought to consider them disobedient. And we ought to consider them worthless. That's what Titus 1.16 says. It's in the New Testament. Detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. This means that even now in the New Testament, there is a sense in which we ought to hate or to detest, to despise people. The people who are the hypocrites. They say one thing, but do another. We ought to detest them. Jesus in this case, however, is not denying Titus 1.16. He's talking about circumstances and incidents when people are, are your enemies that need to receive your love. There will be circumstances when that arises. You should help them. You should pray for them. You should seek for their good, even though they are your enemies. The scribes and the Pharisees did not consider this. They ruled this part out completely. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's confronting them with their hypocrisy. They like to say, oh yeah, we're doing all the law of God. They like to raise their hand and say, I'm fine and good with God. They like to say that, but they don't actually live that way. So Jesus shows their hypocrisy. This is all he's talking about. Then, let's see what Jesus says throughout the book of Matthew, because Whatever conclusion we draw from this passage, we cannot make Jesus contradict himself elsewhere. Because these other passages in Matthew will show, Jesus indeed does have a severe and harsh view of his enemies. He does call out their sin. He does separate from them. He does call them what they need to be called. He does pronounce judgment against them. He does wish for judgment to come on them. He does do all those things towards his enemies in the book of Matthew. So, Matthew 5 has its place and its context in the Christian life. But what about these other passages that we will see? When will we as Christians practice these other passages also from the lips of Jesus in the book of Matthew? Jesus is the one who said in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. So if Jesus' words will not pass away, let's seek to determine the rest of the book of Matthew and what Jesus has said there. Okay, firstly, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. Matthew 7, verse 1, Do not judge, lest you be judged, for in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, you sh it shall be measured to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly enough to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Jesus is talking about hypocrisy here. We should not judge others when we practice the same sins, and, may, and even worse than the people that we are judging. First, clear out the log that's in our eye, and then see clearly enough to take the speck out of the brother's eye. This needs to happen. This is the kind of thing he's talking about. And notice, too, in verse 5, he calls his audience, you hypocrite. In, in, in daily life, whenever you're trying to confront someone, 
you know you turn up, it, uh, you turn up the, the heat, the conflict, the notch, when you say to somebody, you rascal, you hypocrite, you fool. When you say you and the word, the noun, together, you know you are turning, up a, uh, turning it up a notch, aren't you? That's what Jesus did here. He did this. We would say today, oh, no, 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 that's unloving. That's unloving. That's not loving your neighbor. You should not say, you hypocrite, you fool. We should not do that. But Jesus did. He just did right there. Matthew 7, verse 5. And verse 6. Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now here, in verse 6, if the judgment he means in, verse, uh, in verses 1 to 5 means we have no room to make any discerning evaluation about somebody else. We should never try it, never announce it, never do anything, not even take any action against anybody else. If that's what Matthew 7, 1 to 5 means, or even Matthew 5, 43 to 48 means, if that's what it means, and that's what love is, then why did Jesus say this in verse 6, Matthew 7, 6? Do not give what is holy to dogs and pearls before swine. Why? We have to figure out, according to Christ, who are the dogs and who are the swine. We have to figure that out. We have to make a determination. Somebody, some human, some man, is actually behaving like a dog and deserves to be called a dog, identified as a dog or a hog, and then you have to quit giving him the word of truth. Walk away from him. Don't persist with him. He's resisting, he's showing himself to be a dog or hog, then walk away. Don't cast your pearls before swine, and do not give what is holy to dogs. It has to be practiced at some level, in some context. Matthew 7, 21. Remember earlier people, they say, love your enemy, and they apply that in 100% of the circumstances to the extent that they say God's love is unconditional and eternal toward everyone but not according to Matthew 7, 21. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, on the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. God's love is not unconditional and eternal toward every single person. It's impossible. Because Matthew 7, 21 to 23, there will be false professors of religion who will think that they were okay with God, but they weren't okay with God. And God, meaning Christ specifically, will say, I never knew you. You never belonged to me. I never knew you as my child, as somebody in my family as somebody to inherit eternal life. I never knew you like that. We never had that relationship because you practice lawlessness. You who practice lawlessness. Matthew 8, verse 12. Matthew 8, verse 12. I'll begin actually in verse uh, 10. Now when Jesus heard this, he heard about the faith of this man. He says, 
He marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. And I say to you that many shall come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom, meaning the sons of the kingdom of Satan, shall be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, if God's supposed to love his enemies unconditionally and eternally, everyone equally, why is Jesus talking about a time when there's going to be some in the kingdom of heaven and others in the kingdom of hell or Satan and be cast into the outer darkness? They're not going to be at the same table. In fact, what are they going to watch? Psalm 23, that's a beloved psalm to many of us. But have we considered seriously verse 5 of that psalm? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That's talking about the life to come and the marriage supper of the Lamb. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That means we will have a feast before us and our enemies, all the wicked and reprobate people of the world, are going to see it and we're going to enjoy it and they will not. And it's going to be displayed in front of them all. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. This is what Jesus says here. He says there's going to be some at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but then there's other people who are going to be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is no unconditional and eternal love for everyone equally. The Bible knows of no such concept. Here's another. Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10 and verse 14. We'll speak of this more in the next session. But Matthew 10, 14. Jesus gives instructions to the twelve as they go out to preach. And he says in 14, And whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake off the dust of your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. They are supposed to proclaim peace to the house. But if those people don't want that peace and they start rejecting, it says they don't receive you nor heed your words. They don't want to believe. In fact, they start to per persecute you and slander God. As you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Those people are compared to the dust of the ground. So shake it off. You want nothing to do with them, so separate from them. Matthew 11, verse 15. Matthew eleven fifteen. Jesus is preaching, and Matthew eleven fifteen, we note earlier in this context that he's preaching to the multitudes, the crowds of people. He's preaching this and explaining this about John the Baptist to the multitudes or the crowds, and in Matthew eleven fifteen, even though he has an immense number of people before him, he restricts his message. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That means only those people who hear those audible words who also have a spiritual ear, a tender heart, a circumcised heart, eyes to see and ears to hear, only those people will actually 
heed his message. They will only be the ones to believe his message. If there's a thousand people who hear these words, if he had a thousand people before him, maybe only 65 out of the thousand or 12 out of the thousand or 11 out of the thousand will actually have ears to hear and then to follow through with what they hear. Not all the rest. Jesus here is intentionally restricting the benefits of his message in front of a multitude. Restricting the benefits of his message. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, 38. Matthew 12, 38. The scribes and the Pharisees come to Christ to challenge him. And they say, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. As though in the preceding chapters they had not seen enough signs. We want to see a sign from you. So what is Jesus' answer? Verse 39. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Further explaining that Jonah, as he was in the belly of the sea creature for three days and three nights, Jesus would be in the earth, and then he would rise from the dead. Just as Jonah came out of the creature, Jesus will come out of the dead and rise for our salvation. Well, that's the only sign. You've been given many signs, many miracles attesting to who I am. You've already seen many of them, but I'm only going to give you one sign. I'm not going to give you whatever you want. I'm going to give you and demonstrate to you whatever God has already predetermined that to be the ultimate sign for everybody, the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. That is the ultimate one. So he restricts them by that. But he also confronts them. Was that a valid question? No. We know from verse 39, he called them scribes and Pharisees, his arch enemies, religious officials. He called them an evil and adulterous generation who crave, who have an evil desire. They lust after a sign. They lust after a sign because they are evil and adulterous. Now, People will say, well, that's unloving. If, if, someone, if one among us said that to our opponents, religious official, you are an evil and adulterous generation. Then we would say, your approach was wrong, sir, yeah, brother. You, you should have used a more gentle approach. You should have maybe had uh, coffee with him, coffee and dessert or something. Take him, take him out to lunch and pay for his lunch. But then even then they would not say at dessert time, then you can call them an evil and adulterous generation. They would never tolerate that. They never do. The people who are misunderstanding Matthew 5, they do it as a pretext to avoid telling the truth. That's the problem. That's the real problem. They don't understand love correctly because it is loving to tell a scribe or a Pharisee who has a fatal cancer. He has an eternal cancer. It's loving to tell him that you have an eternal cancer, an eternal disease. It will send you to hell unless you repent. That is the loving thing to do. It is loving to tell people the truth. It's never loving to speak half-truths and to mitigate any kind of truth. 
We know that to be the, the case in the doctor's office. We know that to be the case in the mechanic's office. We know that to be the case wi with our builder, somebody who's constructing our house. They have to tell the truth. We have to know the truth. In every and any circumstance, the truth is necessary. And that means saying evil and adulterous to our enemies. Matthew 13, Matthew 13, 1 to 23, we have a similar example as a, a preceding one. Jesus is teaching the crowds, the multitudes. There's an enormous number of people listening to him and following him. Not primarily because of his words, but because of his works, his miracles. They want to see a show. They like to go to the circus and see a show. They like to go to the theater and see a show. People are, have this propensity to go and do that. That's why they're following him. But Jesus takes the opportunity to tell the big crowds about the kingdom of heaven, the truth about that. And he announces this, this common and familiar parable, the parable of the sower, seed, and soils. He tells them this parable. But in the middle, he explains that he does not intend, and God does not intend, for all of them to understand the meaning of the parable. Verse 10, in the middle of it. And the disciples came and said to him, that is on the side. They come and say to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Notice that. To them, the crowds, in parables. And he answered and said to them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been granted. Really, look at that. Jesus does not want them to be granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Purposely, deliberately, Jesus does not want them to understand. That's why he uses parables. When illustrations are used, often in the Bible, they are used in order to cloud the issue with the general people. But the elect, those who have the Holy Spirit within them, they will understand, but not everybody else. That's what Jesus is saying here. Verse 12, for whoever has to him shall more be given and he shall have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Meaning, they might understand a little bit, but then they're going to be busy with life and they're going to forget it and they won't care about it. So it's going to be taken away from them. 13, therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. And with their ears, they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn again, and I heal them. Matthew 13, 34. Matthew 13, 34. How often did Jesus do this? Matthew 13, 34, all these things Jesus spoke to the multitudes in parables, and he was not talking to them without a parable. He was not talking to them without a parable, so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Jesus was not talking to the multitudes without a parable. And the purpose of doing that is to cloud the issues with the multitudes. Not to illustrate and to clarify, but to cloud them. To put muddy waters over their eyes. 
Matthew 15. Matthew 15. Jesus confronts the Pharisees and the scribes again. They come and challenge him with the question. Jesus rebukes them. And then he says, after he has had this rebuke and even teaching the multitudes about the scribes and the Pharisees, we begin at verse 12. Matthew 15, 12. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? It's as though they got Jesus on the side and said, Jesus, you've got to tone it down. You've got to watch it. That's unloving, maybe. Maybe they thought. That's unloving, Jesus. 13. But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. He says, let them alone. After dealing with them for some time, having some interchange with them, some debate and dialogue with them, he said, now it's time to let them alone. So there's a time to separate, according to Jesus. Many people today would say, that's unloving. That's not unconditional love. They say never, yes. They say never give up. Never turn anybody away. Matthew 15, 21 to 28. Here we have this incident of the Syrophoenician woman who is desirous to have her demon-possessed daughter healed. But Jesus does not eagerly, at the outset, help her. He resists it. He resists it for a time. And he waits for her to persist. And when she does persist, then he helps her. But not after calling her a dog. He called her and the people like her a dog. Verse 26. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, he does not mean it the way some misinterpret it. Some people misinterpret this and say, What Jesus meant was actually a a cute little puppy dog. That's what he meant. It's not good to take a fuzzy-wuzzy, cute little puppy dog. That's what he meant. That's what he's calling Gentiles. No, he's not calling Gentiles that. There's no way he's calling Gentiles that. He's meaning it in a derogatory sense. That's the way he's meaning it. You don't give the child's food. You don't give the full meal to the dog. You give it to the child. It's not good to take whatever is supposed to be given to the child and throw it to the dogs. It's not good to do that. You have to first feed the child, the children. And in this context, children equals the children of Israel, the people of Israel. And the dogs are the Gentiles. In a time and in a sense, Jesus considered Gentiles and the Bible considers Gentiles and all unbelievers dogs. In fact, if Jews behave like Gentiles... They are also called dogs. In Philippians chapter 3, Philippians 3, beginning at verse 1, Paul the Apostle called the circumcised false teachers, that means the Jewish false teachers, he called them dogs. He said, beware of the dogs. Next, Matthew 16, Matthew 16, 21. Matthew 16, 21. 
From that time, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Peter, he doesn't want to see his Lord Jesus mistreated, beaten up, and then crucified on a cross. He doesn't want to see that. We would say that that's a good desire. It's a good intention. He doesn't want to see his friend and master mistreated like that and butchered and, and, and impaled on the cross. He doesn't want to see that. But what does Jesus say to that? Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. He called Peter a believer, Satan. Because at this point, Peter was sinning, even with his good intentions, humanly speaking, good intentions. He had these. He was a disciple, yet Peter is called Satan by Christ himself. And he's called a stumbling block to me. And the clarification, because you are setting your mind on man's interests, not God's interests. This is not contrary to love. This has a place. This has a place. Another example, Matthew chapter 18, 18, 15 to 20. Matthew 18, 15 to 20. This is the familiar passage on how to deal with an erring brother, uh, an unrepentant brother in the local church. What to do and the, what steps that, that need to be taken before he is expelled from the local church, expelled from the local assembly. But when he is expelled, verse 17 says, Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. When he was in the body, in the local body, he had certain privileges, certain honors, certain titles. You would call him brother or call her sister. You would say, the, the pastor would say, saints, beloved, friends. He would say that to them. But now... He cannot call him a brother. He has to call him a Gentile and a tax collector. And he does not have any of the duties, the privileges, the honorific titles that are found here in the local assembly. He doesn't have them anymore. He's supposed to be counted as a wicked unbeliever, somebody on the outside, and treated like somebody who's on the outside. Oh, really? You say you're a Christian? You say that to your coworker who doesn't go to church or at all, but they say they're Christians? Oh, you really? You say you're a Christian? Well, what about the gospel? And then you start to, uh, you probe and you find out, no, they're not a Christian. And you can't trust them with what they say. You treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector. They're not Christians. Today, many would say that's unloving. But it's not unloving. It's not. Another, Matthew 21. Matthew 21, 18 to 22. Jesus enters Jerusalem. And upon entry, he has had... Preceding this and succeeding this, he has these confrontations with the religious authorities. He has these confrontations with them. And in verses 18 to 22, he sees a barren fig tree. It has leaves, and with the leaves, it gives the appearance that it also has fruit at this time. But this particular tree does not yet have any fruit, only the leaves. So when he comes closer to it and inspects it, he finds it does not have fruit. 
So he pronounces a curse on it. Jesus curses the fig tree, it withers. Now what's the point? Does Jesus hate trees? No. He created the trees. The point is that those people who are unfruitful, like Jesus' opponents, they deserve to be cursed. They deserve to be cursed. And then he encourages us to desire the same thing. Notice in context how he shows us we should desire it. Verse 21. And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you shall not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, it shall happen. And everything you ask in prayer, believing, you shall receive. So receive a prayer that's asking for a curse in this context. That's what it is. It's not just asking for anything, which would also be true. If we ask anything and it be in accordance with his will, he hears us, 1 John 5, 14. That's also true, but in this context, the reason for asking for everything and believing in prayer is to be able to pronounce a curse just as Jesus did. To pray a curse. Then, we have Matthew 23. Matthew 23. This chapter is Jesus' long discourse on condemnation of the Pharisees and the scribes. Matthew 23. The whole chapter is a condemnation of them, their hypocrisy and their wickedness, their exploitation of people and money and everything. This is what Jesus rails against in this chapter. Now, none of the words in this chapter, anyone, I guarantee you, no pastor, not not even a Christian, would dare to say any of these words in in the full to anybody else. We would never do that because we have been so trained, so brainwashed into thinking that it would be unloving for us to say these words, unloving for us to wish these things. But Jesus did it. And Jesus is our example. He's our moral example. We're not going to become God like him because there's only one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, But we can be and ought to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, Matthew 5.48. So in terms of our values, in terms of our, our transformation from uncleanness to cleanness, from unholiness to holiness, from pollution to purity, we're supposed to be like Christ. Morally, we're supposed to be like Christ. That's what our sanctification is about. That's what our Christian growth and holiness are all about. And so in this case, the way that Jesus speaks... We have to, in, at least in some case, some cases, make room in our theology and our practice for this, the way Jesus does. Now, specifically, verse 29. Verse 29. Keep in mind again, Jesus taught us from Matthew 5, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Is that true? Yes, it's true. We've already said it's true. And there is a place to practice that. But what about a place to practice this? Matthew 23, 29. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Consequently, you bear witness against yourselves 
that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the, the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation." O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you shall not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. See first in verse 29, this familiar Expression, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Familiar in this chapter. He pronounces a woe, a curse upon the scribes and the Pharisees and calls them hypocrites. For you, why? Why are they hypocrites? Because they adorn the tombs of the prophets and they pretend. They think, oh, if I were living in the time of the prophets hundreds of years before, when Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel lived, when I, in the times of those prophets, and even Elijah and Elisha, I, I wouldn't have done the things that my predecessors did. No, no way. Oh, no way. Oh, they were very bad people, very bad and evil people. They wouldn't listen to the prophets. We love the prophets. That's why I bring all these flowers here. That's why we have all these monuments here next to their tombs, on their tombs. We have all this stuff because we really appreciate the prophets. That's what they do. They falsely comfort themselves. They console themselves with a cancerous candy. A candy that, if they partake, gives them cancer, spiritual cancer throughout their whole being. That's what they are doing. It's false consolation. And Jesus calls them out on it. He calls them out, verse 31. Consequently, you bear witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. They're bearing witness against themselves because they say they would not have done as their ancestors did to the true prophets. But Jesus' message conforms to the true prophets. The prophets announced it, and Jesus and the apostles, they, they say that in conformity and in harmony with the prophets, they announce the same gospel, they have the same expectations, Turn from sin, repent of sin, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. They're preaching the same thing, and yet you're not believing in me. So when you say you would not have done that, you are a hypocrite, and you're testifying against yourself. You're saying you would not have done that, but you are doing that. You have been doing that throughout my ministry. You are sons of those who murdered the prophets, the true prophets. Then 32, he doesn't let up. By this point, many of us would say, okay, that's enough, Jesus. That's enough. But no, he doesn't let up. Verse 32, fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. Fill up. In all of your Bibles, you will see that fill up is an imperative. Any grammarians here? An imperative. An imperative has one, uh, one of its major purposes is to express a command. 
Do this, don't do that. Stand up, sit down. Go over there, please give me that or give me that. Those are commands. They are imperatives. That's what we have in verse 32. Jesus said, fill up. Fill up the glass, we say. Fill up the tank. Fill up. Fill up what? He's commanding them to continue in sin. He's telling them, go ahead, keep doing it. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. Yes, your ancestors, your fathers, they did it to a certain level. But I'm telling you, do it more until we reach this limit. And then the judgment of God's going to come right on your head. That's what he's saying. That's what's in the, in the following passage. Isn't he saying that? I'm going to send you prophets and wise men. And then he's saying your house is going to be left to you desolate. The full measure of God's punishment is going to come at a point, and it'll be you'll be destroyed. The temple was destroyed 40 years later, A.D. 70, and the people of Israel were scattered. And they have never had uh, the city walls or the, the temple, anything like that, since then. Verse 33. If that's not enough, he's not letting up. Look at 33. You serpents. There we have the you word. You serpents. And then we have a word that is a very, very bad term. Bad in terms of you would never want anybody to call you a serpent in this sense. A serpent is a dangerous and poisonous animal. A serpent is lethal. A serpent has venom. And when they use their tongue, they have venom that can poison its objects. He's calling these people serpents in that sense. He's saying that they, when they teach, they have poisonous venom coming out of their mouths. And it's lethal. It, has, it causes spiritual murder. They are murderers of souls because there's eternal punishment. That's what he calls them. And he calls them a brood of vipers. Just to make sure. That's what he meant. He meant serpents that are poisonous. He calls them a brood or a group of vipers. How shall you escape the sentence of hell? Look at that. He's saying it's inevitable. He's saying there's no turning back for you. He's saying there's no hope for you. How shall you escape the sentence of hell? You're not going to escape hell. How shall you escape? He's not saying figure a way out. He's not meaning that. He's not saying, do you remember what I taught you? Why don't you bring those back to your memory or go ask somebody so that, or let me sit down with you and help you out some, some more. How are you going to escape hell? He doesn't say any of that. He's not asking the question for them to have a genuine curiosity and concern for their souls to repent. He's saying with the question, there's no way that you're going to escape hell. That's where you are headed. God has already determined and I know from your obstinance, you are headed to hell. How shall you escape the sentence of hell? 34. He pushes it even further. 34. Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Who's the sender here? I is Christ. Some of you have a red-letter edition of the Bible. You know that Jesus is speaking here, according to the English uh, 
printers of the, your Bible, it's red letters. Jesus is the speaker. They're making it more clear to us. Jesus is the speaker. Whatever Jesus meant in Matthew 5, 43 to 48, about loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you, it does not and cannot contradict what Jesus is doing right here. He is intentionally, I am sending you, prophets, wise men, and scribes. I'm going to send you righteous prophets, righteous wise men, and righteous scribes. I'm going to send them to you on purpose, deliberately. I intend to send them to you because this is what you will do, and I want you to do this. Verse 34, some of them you will kill, crucify, some scourge from city to city, and persecute. This is what you will do. I'm doing this purposely. Well, you would think if God's love is unconditional, if God's love is eternal and equal to everyone, and if Jesus is practicing love your enemy the way that we have concocted what that means, he wouldn't do this. He wouldn't do this. But he is doing it. And then, make, to make it even worse, 35. Why is he doing this deliberately? 35 explains. Notice at the beginning of verse 35, it says, that upon you may fall. In the, in the text, that means the purpose. It's a conjunction. It's known as a purposive conjunction, a conjunction of purpose. It explains the reason that Jesus is sending them the prophets. He's sending them for an intentional purpose, that, or so that, or your Bible might say, in order that. Whatever it says, all three of those conjunctions mean the same thing in English. So that, that, or in order that mean the same thing. He wants this to happen. The purpose of sending is the following, 35. That upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of Abel to Zechariah, whom you murdered. Notice that he blames them, because the seed of, uh, of doubt and this poison that existed from Satan, the serpent, in the Garden of Eden, and to all of his spiritual descendants, it was in their ancestors, and it's in them too, and he accuses them of murder whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. They didn't live in the time of Zechariah. Zechariah had lived centuries before. And Abel lived from the beginning of the earth, millennia before. They weren't around, but he accuses them because they have that same unbelief and obstinance as their ancestors. And he wants, what's the purpose? He wants for their guilt, he wants all of this righteous blood to fall on their head. He wants the culmination of all their sins to be punished and demonstrated and manifested, exposed in his generation. Which means that it was sentenced here in AD 30, and 40 years later, many places in the Bible, about 40 years is a generation, and he wants it to fall on them, which it did in AD 70. In AD 70, God sent the Roman armies to destroy Jerusalem and the temple and then to murder and massacre many of the Jewish people and to scatter them throughout the Roman Empire and elsewhere. That's what happened, A.D. 70. This is the context in which verses 37 to 39 are said. 
37 to 39, he does say, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks uh, under her wings, and you were unwilling. Yes, he does say this, but it is not in, a, in, a, in the sense that there is a reluctance to judge people. He's calling out, actually, their unbelief. You were unwilling to come. That's what he's calling out. But he's not saying, from 37 and following, he's not saying that, really, I hate to do this to you. I'm not going to do it to you. I really wish I didn't have to do it to you. He's not saying it with that manner. He's not saying it with that purpose. He's saying that you should have repented. I stretched out my arms to you all day long, and you would not come. That's the problem. That's what he's expressing. And what, even if we say verse 37 it is about Jesus' compassion, and some interpreters say that, that it's about his compassion, Jesus could have two emotions at the same time. He could have this anger and disgust towards them, but he could also be grieved at their unbelief. God does this simultaneously in many cases, and even Jesus has done this uh, on other cases. One example is Mark chapter 3, verse 5. Mark 3, 5, he's a, in the presence of his opponents, he is going to heal a man, but verse 5, Mark 3, verse 5, and after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. You see there? What are the two emotions that Jesus has? Looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. He's got those two emotions. Those two emotions are evident in Matthew 23. Even if we take the interpretation that verse Matthew 23:37 is a verse of compassion. He's grieved at their hardness of heart. Both exist and can exist at the same time. There are other examples in Matthew. But I trust that this suffices for us to realize we cannot make Jesus contradict himself. Matthew 5 has a meaning in its place, and the other passages have meanings too. Our call is for us to take the whole counsel of God together, interpret it all together. Not just one part and not just the other, but all of it in their due place, with their proper interpretation. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Our Lord, we pray that we will trust that your words are heavenly words and your words are everlasting words. We pray, Lord, that we would have full conviction that they are true and that we would seek to live our life according to your model. Lord, you are the sinless, spotless, holy Lamb of God. We pray that we too will have those kinds of thoughts, those words, those deeds in our, in our life day by day. Grant that to us. We ask in your name. Amen.